0: Okay, here we go. Uh, Welcome to another installment of our church history series. And in the last segment, (laughs) we, uh, always popular, uh, last time, last month, we traced uh, early developments uh, of the black churches in America that were getting started in the pre-Civil War era. And we're gonna put the black church on hold for a little bit. Uh, We'll come back to it, definitely. Um, And this time, we're gonna focus on some particular developments in American religious life in the 19th century, the 1800s. One one, uh, thing we're gonna talk about is the Cane Ridge Revival. You may have heard of that. Um, You should know what that is if if you've never heard of it. uh, To just uh, be a little familiar with it, that is helpful. Then we're going to talk about the Millerites, and an important group that came from the Millerites is the Seventh-day Adventists. And then we're going to, uh, the remaining third of the talk is going to be on the Mormons and how they developed. The Cane Ridge Revival was the largest and most notable of the revival meetings of the Second Great Awakening so we had the first great awakening in the 1700s with the methodists and then the second there was another revival movement that occurred right around the turn of the century between the seven, end of the 1700s and the beginning of the 1800s and this was has become known as the second great awakening and it was held uh, the cambridge revival was held in cambridge kentucky from august 6th to august 12th or 13th in 1801 and it has been described as the largest and most famous camp meeting of the Second Great Awakening. This camp meeting was arguably the pioneering event in the history of frontier camp meetings in America. So this was a very large and important revival meeting. It was led by 18 Presbyterian ministers, but numerous Methodist and Baptist preachers also spoke and assisted. Many signs of the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, were exhibited that in the 20th century became associated with the Pentecostal movement. Built in 1791, the Cambridge Meeting House was a large log structure believed to be at that time the single large or the largest single room log structure in America. The revival was held in this meeting house although the number of people attending was much larger than what could fit into the log cabin. Estimates of the number of people in attendance vary, but up to 20,000 could have attended the meeting at some time during the week which would have been At that time, nearly 10% of the recorded population of Kentucky in 1800. So there were, this was, you know, when you think about frontier America, sparsely populated wilderness areas, um, this was exceptional. To have, you know, even 10,000 people at an event was just uh, uh, amazing. now, at least one and possibly more speaking platforms were constructed outside the building because the number of attendees far exceeded the capacity of the meeting house. So, obviously, a log cabin structure, you know, it's not nearly going to suffice to hold this meeting. Okay, and here it's a little bit dark, but this is a picture of the interior of this log cabin. It still exists. You can go visit it. Cane Ridge, Kentucky is not far. uh, It's actually outside Paris, Kentucky, which is a a small town close to, I believe it's Lexington. So that's not that far from here, and you can go and visit it. Um, If you're interested in more information, check out the website, caneridge.org. If you decide you want to go visit this uh, place, I encourage you to call ahead because, with COVID, you know a lot of these historical sites. You know, sometimes they've closed down for periods of time, and, or they have restricted hours. But you can see this this building, um, this cabin. They, they ended up building a big stone church that surrounds the log cabin. So this is a building inside of a building, which is kind of different but um obviously an old log cabin eventually is going to fall apart you know it's subject to the to the elements and you know they wanted to preserve it so they built this big stone church over the entire log cabin the meeting was hosted by the presbyterian church at cane ridge and its minister barton w stone In 1804, a small group of Presbyterian ministers from Kentucky and Ohio, including Stone, penned and signed a document called The Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery at Cane Ridge that resulted in the birth of a movement seeking unity among Christians along non-sectarian lines. Now, of course, the irony is anytime you have a new movement of christianity especially in the united states you know everybody's like we're going to be unified we're going to be unified and then as time goes on they splinter Um, and indeed this there there are still organizations in existence that can trace their roots back to uh, the Cambridge revival at the time they decided we're just going to simply call ourselves christians we're not going to use labels like presbyterian or methodist or baptist however Again, later, different groups uh, kind of emerged from this initial group. So if you've heard of Disciples of Christ, um, they started off simply calling themselves the Christian church, but later they were known as Disciples of Christ. The Churches of Christ Non-Instrumental. So today in America we have the Churches of Christ Instrumental and we have the Churches of Christ Non-Instrumental. They do not use any musical instruments in their worship. Um, and then there are simply the Christian churches and they are you know, an independent, non-aligned group, but they trace their, their, the beginnings of their particular um, groups back to what became called the Stone-Campbell Movement. Um, and this is, many church historians believe that this movement, the Stone-Campbell Movement, is really the first emergence of purely American uh, Protestant denominations. Okay, now we're gonna turn to a gentleman by the name of William Miller, and we're also gonna talk about the Adventists because it is from William Miller's work that various Adventist groups in America emerged. Uh, Has anybody heard of William Miller? Anybody? A lot of people today are not familiar with him, uh, uh, know of him, um, but this and of course the name William Miller is a pretty generic name. But this particular man, uh, born in 1782, got caught up in this uh, second great awakening, this great revival, um, and uh, he, you know, he became converted. Um, Previously, he was an officer in the U.S. Army and fought during the War of 1812, and at that time, he had been very skeptical. He had really embraced deist philosophy, uh, so he was really not a Christian. Uh, But then he was converted to the Baptist faith during the 1820s, and he began to study the Bible, especially the prophetic books of Daniel and the Revelation to John. Primarily on the basis of his interpretation of Daniel 8:14, which spoke of 2,300 days, he concluded that Christ would return in about the year 1843. So, you know, from time to time, you hear about people who are predicting, and this this still goes on today. People who are sure that they have figured out how to calculate, you know, when Christ will return. And here is a portrait of Miller. Miller's efforts to establish the date of the second advent, or appearing and return of Christ to earth, were eagerly picked up by some Christians, and his group became known as the Millerites. So he began to attract a following. Ideas about the millennium, the time period, when Christ would return to earth to reign in bodily form were circulating among Christians. So if you read the Gospels, you read the book of Revelation, uh, books like Daniel, and there's other references to it. You know, there's references to the future coming of Christ and what that's going to look like. And um, honestly, a lot of people take scripture and add a lot of things into it, read things into it, make assumptions about what it's saying that are not necessarily correct. And Miller is one of those. Miller began to preach in 1831, and I would note here, Miller did not attend a seminary. He was not part of any recognized church group. He was kind of a loose cannon. You know, I got saved. I know. I know the Lord now, so I'm going to go preach. Um, so he didn't. He was approaching this without a lot of educational background. Um, it's just me and the Bible, and here I go. And he soon emerged as the leader of a popular movement. As the year 1843 approached, Miller predicted more specifically that Christ would return between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Miller based his predictions on his own unique interpretation of passages in Daniel and Revelation. Miller based his calculations principally on Daniel 814, which reads in part, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And this is a quote out of the King James Version. And Miller assumed that the cleansing of the sanctuary that Daniel speaks of represents the earth's purification by fire at Christ's second coming. So, you know, he wasn't thinking of this as Daniel... Prophesying an event that would happen in time before William Miller was even born, hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. Instead, Miller looked at this passage and said, "This belongs to a time in the future from, you know, my existence." Uh, so that right there is kind of a primary, um, you know, a, a faulty assumption. Okay, so hopefully you can see this, this little timeline up here. The numbers might be a little small, but what he has done is he has taken, uh, when Daniel uses the word weeks, Miller has overlaid his assumption about what Daniel is referring to when he uses the word weeks and days. He doesn't mean, you know, he doesn't interpret it literally. Miller's interpretation is based on the idea that a day spoken of in the book of Daniel is equivalent to a year, 365 days. Where did he get this idea? I don't know. (laughs) Um, Miller and others interpreted a day in prophecy to read not as a 24-hour period, but it's a calendar year. He became convinced that the 2,300-day period started in 457 B.C. with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes I of Persia. You know, so the Jewish people are in exile, and, you know, the, the, <coughs> essentially the Persian king, <coughs> excuse me, Says, you know, I want you to go back and rebuild the temple. Okay, so if you use Miller's day year idea, 2,300 days becomes 2,300 years. So that takes us to 1843, right? Okay. In 1832, Miller submitted a series of 16 articles to the Vermont Telegraph, a Baptist newspaper. Now, of course, if you think, you know, in two years, Christ is coming back, if you really believe that, that's exciting. So public response was overwhelming. So Miller put together a booklet titled Evidence from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ about the year 1844 exhibited in a course of lectures. Joshua Von Himes, the president of Chardon Street Chapel in Boston, Massachusetts, picked up Miller's work and publicized it even more widely in a publication entitled Signs of the Times. And this publication continues to this day. It is published by the Seventh-day Adventist churches. In August 1844, at a camp meeting in Exeter, New Hampshire, Samuel Snow presented a message that became known as the seventh month message or the true midnight cry. In other words, get ready, Christ is coming. In a discussion based on scriptural typology, Snow presented his conclusion, again picking up on Miller's idea of 2,300, days equaling we, uh, years uh, again from daniel eight fourteen, and he calculated that christ is going to return on the 10th day of the seventh month of the present year as determined by a jewish dating system that he used in 1844. christ's failure to return <laughs> at that time has since been known in adventist circles as the Great Disappointment. (laughs) The following year, those who still believed in Miller's prophetic message convened the Mutual Conference of Adventists to sort out problems. So the main body formed a loosely knit fellowship, the Evangelical Adventists, which became the foundation of all modern Adventist churches. Among those who continued to accept Miller's prophecy were Joseph Bates, James White, and James, or rather White's wife, Ellen, sometimes she's known as Ellen G. H. Harmon White or Ellen Harmon White or Ellen G. White. These Adventists believed that Miller had set the right date but had interpreted events incorrectly. From their reading of Daniel 8 and 9, they concluded that God had begun the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. In other words, we're going to call this an investigative judgment, which is an action that's invisible to the human eye. So, you know, Miller, from their point of view, Miller has misinterpreted Christ's return. Instead, what is really happening is uh, God is really beginning, in essence, what is the last judgment. It's already begun, but he's doing it in the heavenlies. And it's, you know, it's not occurring on earth. It's something most humans can't even see or know about, except you know, unless you're a Christian. And then in the future, there will be the final, you know, there will be the pronouncement of the final judgment Okay, so God's already begun the Last Judgment. It's a process. You know, it's taking place in heaven. We don't see it visibly here on earth. And then it will be concluded at an event that most Christians would call the Last Judgment. In 1844, in their view, God had begun an examination of all the names in the Book of Life. And only after this was completed would Christ appear and begin his millennial reign. They did not set a new date for that visible appearance, but they insisted that Christ's advent was imminent. So here's a portrait of Ellen G. White, born in 1827 and died in 1915. She is a key figure for the Seventh-day Adventists today. She claimed to have received over 2,000 visions and dreams from God in both public and private meetings throughout her life, which were witnessed by Adventist pioneers and the general public. Uh, She verbally described and published for public consumption the content of each vision. These writings are a a very important part of Seventh-day Adventist uh, theology and church practice. And for Seventh-day Adventists, her writings stand next to the Bible. A Seventh-day Adventist will say, you know, scripture is first, and then the writings of Ellen G. White. The Whites also came to believe that worship on the seventh day, Saturday, was proper for Christians. The practice of Saturday worship gave the denomination established in 1863 a new name, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventists also believed that Ellen White had the gift of prophecy, and her lectures and writings shaped the later beliefs and practices of the church. Now, other Adventist churches were formed out of Miller's movement, but the Seventh-day Adventists is the largest group uh, that remains in existence today. And Seventh-day Adventists, I think they claim to have about 20 million members worldwide. They are very active in evangelism. Um, There are Seventh day Adventist missionaries going out in all parts of the world. Other Adventist bodies emerged in the 19th century. Some, such as the Advent Christian Church and the Life and Advent Union, which merged into the Advent Christian Church in 1964, rejected both the prophetic status of Ellen White and seventh day worship. So, you know, you might encounter people who are part of Adventist churches that aren't necessarily advocating that weekly worships should occur on Saturday. And you might you might find that surprising, but you know, they don't all hold to that opinion. Now, another group, the International Bible Students Association was inspired by Miller and Adventist teachings and was founded in 1872 by Charles Taze Russell. Changing its name to the Jehovah's Witnesses in the 1930s, it became the second successful group to emerge from the original Millerite movement. And of course, we know that today uh, Jehovah's Witness Witnesses um, may not be exactly thriving, but they are very much in existence today. I'm not gonna talk any further about Jehovah's Witnesses in this talk, we'll deal with them later. I really wanna focus on Seventh Day Adventists um, because it's important to understand, uh, you know, the points of uh, Christian orth- Orthodox with a lowercase o, Orthodox Christian theology versus Seventh-day Adventist theology. Seventh-day Adventists share many of the basic beliefs of Protestant Christianity, including acceptance of the authority of the Bible, recognition of the existence of human sin and the need for salvation, and belief in the atoning work of Christ. They are officially Trinitarian today, believing in the three co-eternal persons of the Godhead, But on several occasions, they have seriously debated this doctrine and some Adventist groups have rejected it. Um, So that's an important thing to keep in mind if you're ever, you know, talking to someone who's a Seventh-day Adventist. They may not necessarily be Trinitarian. Their elevation of the prophecies of Ellen G. White to a level almost on par with the Bible is a distinction from Protestant Christianity. Seventh-day Adventism emerged at a time when many Protestants were divided into Calvinist and Arminian camps. The former Calvinists emphasizing predestination and the sovereignty of God, and the Arminians emphasizing human choice and God's election. The Adventists came to accept the Arminian interpretation of Christ's atonement. They argued that his death was provisionally and potentially for all men, yet efficacious or effective only for those who avail themselves of its benefits. So Christ died for all, but not all choose him. An emphasis on Saturday worship also led to a greater emphasis on Old Testament teachings and practices. Seventh-day Adventists have a formal statement of beliefs known as the 28 statements, and you can look them up online if you want. They believe that the Bible is the infallible revelation of God's will, but they reject the verbal inspiration position on scripture held by most conservative evangelical Christians. Now this might not seem like a big deal, but think further about this. They believe instead that God inspired the thoughts of the biblical authors, but then the authors expressed those thoughts in their own words. In other words, God did not give them the words. He gave them the thoughts. They used their own words to express those thoughts. And this idea is known as thought inspiration, and most Adventist members hold to this view. Adventists have traditionally taught that the majority of Protestant churches have failed to complete the Reformation by overturning the errors of Roman Catholicism and restoring the beliefs and practices of the primitive church, or in other words, the church as we see it portrayed in the New Testament, including Sabbath-keeping, adult baptism, and conditional immortality. And conditional immortality is a whole thing in and of itself, which I didn't have the time to get into. But you can research it if you want. So their orientation has more in common with Anabaptist ideas than Reformed theology. Adventists also do not consider themselves to be fundamentalist Christians. And again, the major distinctions include observing Saturday or the seventh day of the week as the Sabbath that God has chosen, and that's the day we should worship, And also this idea of the investigative judgment that started in the 1840s and continues on. Adventists believe that Christians should observe the seventh day of the week, or Saturday, as the the Sabbath, instead of celebrating Sunday as the Lord's Day. They believe that religious observance on Sunday was instituted by the Roman Emperor Constantine when he legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire by the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. So in other words, when, when Christianity became legalized in Rome and <clears throat> in essence became, you know, their view is, okay, this government, this pagan system has co-opted or taken over Christianity by legalizing it and therefore has begun to Institute practices that aren't really Christian. And they believe that Constantine did this, you know, said you have to celebrate on Sunday to keep the Christians and the Jews separate. So, you know, whether that has any real historical basis is, you know, suspect. So their thinking is since Sunday observance was instituted by a Roman emperor, it should be dismissed by true Christians as opposed to, well, maybe Constantine really did get saved, and Christians had been celebrating on the Lord's Day Sunday since the very beginning. Um, So that's a a major point of difference. Now, the investigative judgment is a doctrine unique to the Seventh-day Adventists, and it teaches that the judgment of God's professed people began On October 22nd, 1844, when Christ entered the Holy of Holies in the heavenly sanctuary. Biblical basis for that? I don't see any. Adventists believe the investigative judgment is portrayed in texts such as Daniel 7, 9-10, 1 Peter 4, 17, and Revelation 20, 12. But those verses don't say anything about 1844. The purpose of this judgment, according to the Adventists, is to vindicate the saints before the onlooking universe, to prepare them for Christ's imminent second coming, and to demonstrate God's righteous character in his dealings with humanity. This judgment will also separate true believers from those who falsely claim to be ones. Also, the Adventists believe that they are the remnant described in Revelation 12, 17. The remnant church announces the arrival of the judgment hour, proclaims salvation through Christ, and heralds the approach of his second advent. And this is taken from their statement of belief number 13. The duty of the remnant is summed up in the three angels' message of Revelation 14, 6 through 12, and its two distinguishing marks are Seventh-day Sabbath observance and the spirit of prophecy, as embodied in the writings of Ellen G. White. Up to the 1890s, most Seventh-day Adventists were anti-Trinitarian. They viewed God the Father as God in every way. The Son is divine, but he is begotten. In other words, there was a time in the universe where the Son of God did not exist. And he had a beginning. Okay? That's not a Trinitarian view of Jesus Christ. For them, the Holy Spirit was simply a manifestation of either the Father or the Son. So in essence, kind of a modalism. These views began to change in the 1890s when A.T. Jones, an Adventist preacher, began teaching the eternal deity of Jesus. During his 1895 series on the third angel's message, again from the book of Revelation, he also returned repeatedly to Colossians 2.9. And Colossians 2.9 in the King James reads, uh, 9 through 10, For in him, that is Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So in other words, at this period of time, this Adventist preacher is moving towards what would be considered an Orthodox Trinitarian view, and in particular, uh, the nature of of Christ, the Son of God. Ellen G. White's prophecies, however, reveal her semi-Orthodox Trinitarian beliefs, but until the 20th century, Adventist views on the Trinity could be described as Arian or semi-Arian. So, as King Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. This idea that the Son of God had a beginning and is not eternal deity, as, just as the Father and the Holy Spirit are, was part of a her- early heresy in the Christian church called Arianism. Um, So, again, this is not a new idea, and there are other groups that have similar Aryan beliefs, even to this day. As part of its emphasis on living out Christian principles, Seventh-day Adventists, I've abbreviated that, SDAs, advocate healthy living. And they base this on 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. SDA belief number 22 states in part, because our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, we are to care for them intelligently. Along with adequate exercise and rest, we are to adopt the most healthful diet possible and abstain from the unclean foods identified in the scriptures. Since alcoholic beverages, tobacco, and the irresponsible use of drugs and narcotics are harmful, To our bodies, we are to abstain from them as well. Many SDAs are vegetarian due to the emphasis on healthy living and the belief that God's provision of a vegetarian diet for Adam and Eve, go back and read about that in Genesis, uh, is best. You know, God creates Adam and Eve and he says, here are all these different plants for you to eat. So the Adventists look at that and say, that's what we should go back to. Okay, now let's move on to the Mormons and talk about how they got started. Some of you may be familiar with this and some of you may not. I, um, you know, from time to time you encounter perhaps Mormon missionaries. Maybe some of them have even knocked on your door. That happened to me one time. I, you know, I knew who they were right away. They didn't have to tell me. (laughs) You know, you can usually spot Mormon missionaries. They're usually two young men Wearing black pants, white shirts, and a black skinny black tie, and these days a lot of them have a black backpack with you know their supplies and, and tracks and whatnot. Um, and this was a, this happened a long time ago. They knocked on my door. I came to the door, you know, and they said, "Hello, can we talk talk to you about it's something really innocuous?" I don't. This was many many years ago, and you know, I looked at them. I said. I'm a born-again Christian. I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. I speak in tongues. I believe the Bible. And I think I said a few other things to them, and they looked at me, and they just just turned and walked away. (laughs) Didn't engage. (laughs) I wasn't mean. I wasn't nasty. I just said, hey, I'm a born-again Christian, and I kind of know where you're at. (laughs) And I'm not interested in talking about it. So... Um, so again, I, you know, you may know some things about them, you may know nothing about them, but basically they are a religious and cultural group. So there's a big emphasis on the, you know, the culture that they were forming and they are in fact a pseudo or false Christian cult. They try to appear Christian, but they are indeed not Christian. Okay. So they're, um, uh, The principal branch became known as the Latter-day Saint movement, and it was started by Joseph Smith in upstate New York during the 1820s. After Smith's death in 1844, the movement split into several groups following different leaders. The majority followed Brigham Young, you may have heard of Brigham Young, while smaller groups followed Joseph Smith III, Sidney Rigdon, and James Strang. Those are some important names in Mormon history. Most of these smaller groups eventually coalesced or gelled into an organization that they called the Community of Christ. Now today, the term Mormon usually refers to a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I'm going to abbreviate that LDS Church or just LDS. And this branch is today the largest of all of them. Since 2018, the LDS Church has requested that its members be referred to as Latter-day Saints, and they would prefer that you not call them Mormons. The word Mormon was originally coined to describe any person who believes in the Book of Mormon as a volume of scripture. The term Mormonite and Mormon were originally descriptive terms used by outsiders to the faith, occasionally used by church leaders but again not a term they really wanted people to use the founder of the lds was joseph smith jr born december 23rd 1805 in sharon vermont and if um, and, you know like most you know 18th century paintings it's really dark they wear black clothes they paint the portrait with dark colors But his face is pretty visible. He's an attractive looking man. It turns out he was very charismatic as well. And that stood him in good stead in um, developing this pseudo-Christian religion. By the age of 12, his family had moved to Western New York State where an intense religious revival was taking place. And we'll talk more about what was going on in Western New York Uh, later when we talk about the ministry of Charles G. Finney, Western New York was so filled with revival fire that people were referring to it as the burned-out field. In other words, the the fire of God is so intense, everything is burning in this part of America. Uh, Smith later said he had a vision in 1820 of two personages, who he believed were God the Father and Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I've I've had these visions of God and his son. Uh, He, he of course, had other visions. And in 1823, he had a vision in which an angel directed him to a buried book of golden plates inscribed with a Judeo-Christian history of an ancient American civilization. Completely made up. In 1830, Smith published what he said was an English translation of these plates called the Book of Mormon. The same year, he organized what he called the Church of Christ, again, very generic name, and he called it a restoration of the early Christian church. Members of the church were later called Latter-day Saints or Mormons, and Smith announced a revelation in 1838 And he said, based on that, we're going to rename our church as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So essentially, you know, all of this is stuff Smith made up claiming he received all of this revelation in visions. Now, in 1831, Smith and his followers, and again, he was a very charismatic, organized leader. You know, it's unfortunate that such a talented man Got caught up, you know, in total heresy, but he did, and he attracted a lot of followers very quickly, and they moved west, and the idea was, we are going to establish Zion in the wilderness, the American Zion. We're going to recreate, you know, we are the people of God. We are going to build Zion in the American wilderness. They first went to Kirtland, Ohio. Um, There's a big Mormon church there to this day. They also established an outpost in Independence, Missouri, and they have a big organization to this day in Missouri. And this this place in Missouri was uh, initially intended to be Zion Center Place. This is where we're gonna establish um, the new American Zion. And of course, in those days, Independence, Missouri, um, it was kind of a jumping off point for American settlers who were heading further west but in those days this you know Missouri was still pretty much a wilderness. This is the 1830s. So Smith sent out missionaries, published revelations and supervised construction of the Kirtland Temple in Ohio. But the LDS experienced persecution and difficulty in Kirtland. A bank they had formed called the Kirtland Safety Society that was to serve the LDS community collapsed. In Missouri, there were violent skirmishes with non-Mormons. Many Missourians feared that the large LDS population would take political and economic control of their state. And indeed, uh, the LDS were intent, you know, we're going to establish this American Zion, you know, the city, the shining city set on the hill. And so they had not only religious ambitions behind that, but political ambitions as well. I mean, they're intent on creating their own, essentially, nation within a nation. Now, slavery was still being practiced in Missouri, and the people there, knowing that the Mormons opposed slavery, were afraid that they would vote to outlaw it. The LDS did not, uh, you know, hide their political ambitions along with their religious ambitions. So the Battle of Crooked River was one of several clashes between the LDS and a unit of the Missouri State Militia in northern Ray County, Missouri, and it took place during the 1838 Mormon War. Has anybody ever heard of the the Mormon War? No, no, not not in the usual history books anyway. After the battle, the governor of Missouri issued Missouri Ag- Executive Order 44, sometimes called the extermination order, expelling the LDS. They fled to Illinois, 10,000 of them. Okay, So Smith is doing a really good job recruiting and you know, putting together this um, you know, pseudo-Christian cult. They've, they've got a lot of followers. They ended up establishing a new settlement at Nauvoo, Illinois, And Smith really came into his own there as a spiritual and political leader. But life was not peaceful in Illinois for the LDS, and not just because non-LDS were concerned about losing land and political power to uh, the Mormons. During the early 1840s, Smith developed a theology of family relations called the New and Everlasting Covenant that superseded all earthly bonds. He taught that outside the covenant, marriages were simply matters of contract, not real marriages in in the Mormon way of thinking. In the afterlife, individuals who had married outside the covenant or were not married at all would be limited in their progression in eternity, which that's a whole other doctrine. To fully enter the covenant, a man and woman must participate in a first anointing, a sealing ceremony, and a second anointing, also called sealing by the Holy Spirit of Promise. When fully sealed into the covenant, Smith said that no sin or blasphemy, other than the eternal sin, in other words, to willfully deny and defy the Holy Spirit after having received his witness, but uh, other than that, no sin or blasphemy could keep the married LDS members from their exaltation in the afterlife. But according to Smith, only one person on Earth at a time—in this case, Smith—could possess this power of sealing. You know, so this is, this has evolved into a full-blown cult with Smith as the cult leader. Smith taught that the highest level of exaltation. Could be achieved through plural marriage or polygamy, which was the ultimate manifestation of this new and everlasting covenant. And a lot of the heat that the LDS took uh, from non LDS people was, again, related to polygamy. You know, these practices are, it's not Christian. um, You know, you can't justify it from the Bible, and maybe it's in the Book of Mormon, but, you know, that's a heretical piece of literature. Um, but this, you know, polygamy, for, for the average American, even the non-religious af- uh, average American, this this is just, like, way too far. Plural marriage, according to Smith, allowed an individual to transcend the angelic state and become a god, accelerating the ins- the expansion of one's heavenly kingdom. So, indeed... Mormons believe that, you know, if you do everything right in this life, then when you go to heaven, you will become a god. (laughs) In August 1838, Smith was charged with treason and imprisoned in Missouri. Now, while Smith was in prison, Brigham Young, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, uh, rose to prominence, and he organized the move of about 14,000 Mormon refugees to Illinois and eastern Iowa. Smith finally managed to escape prison in April uh, 1839. Uh, Now, Illinois accepted some Mormon refugees who had gathered along the banks of the Mississippi River where Smith purchased high-priced swampy woodland in the hamlet of Commerce, Illinois. Smith also attempted to portray the LDS as an oppressed minority and unsuccessfully petitioned the federal government for help in obtaining reparations. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes,
0: it is, yeah. Um, uh, you know, what? I think what this highlights for us is that freedom of religion in America means things like this can flourish. And, you know, uh, okay, so here's a pseudo-Christian cult, you know, claiming to be a legitimate religious group um, and wanting, you know, wanting the government to uh, treat it favorably, um, you know, so this whole idea of freedom of religion can kind of be turned around and used in ways that, you know, the country's founders did not ever really intend for it to be used. Now, during the summer of 1839, while the LDS were in Illinois suffering from a malaria epidemic, Smith sent Brigham Young and other apostles to missions in Europe where they made numerous converts, many of them poor factory workers. Smith attracted thousands of devoted followers before he was shot to death in 1844 by a mob and millions in the century that followed. And of course, you know, as we'll trace later, um, Brigham Young eventually led the Mormons into Utah where they established their American Zion. Now, of course, among LDS, Smith is regarded as a prophet on par with Moses and Elijah. Among among non-LDS, he is regarded as a fraudulent cult leader. Biographers, LDS and non-LDS alike, agree that Smith was one of the most influential and charismatic and innovative figures in American religious history. He invented a religion, a pseudo-Christian cult that wove and distorted Christian ideas with revelations and visions that have absolutely nothing to do with uh, basic Orthodox Christianity. In September of 1823, Smith had allegedly received several visions from the angel Moroni, reportedly a resurrected prophet warrior. According to Moroni, God had chosen Joseph Smith to be the prophet of the Restoration. But Smith did not submit his visions to the clear teaching of scripture, nor did he submit to the Orthodox Christian Church. Galatians 1.8 says, but even if we, uh, Paul, this is written by the Apostle Paul, referring to himself and the other apostles, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, the measuring rod by which Smith should have evaluated his visions and schemes was available to him had he been part of the true body of Christ and had he known the Scriptures. And I want to end finally um, with a favorite Bible verse of mine, which I think, you know, typifies what people like Smith do. Proverbs 18:1, "He who separates himself seeks his own desire." He quarrels against all sound wisdom." So that concludes what I have to say about this uh, part of American uh, church uh, religious history. I can't say it's Christian religious history necessarily, of course, Um, but these are, you know, Seventh-day Adventists are big today. You should know what they believe. You may encounter Seventh-day Adventists from time to time. Um, You should definitely know what the LDS Church preaches and teaches. You should understand how they are, the different ways in which they are not Christian. Um, You know, you should at least understand the basics. You never know when you are going to encounter uh, an LDS church member. So I leave you with that. Kyle, question? I could, I could definitely, um, probably I would cover messianic Jews when we get to the charismatic movement, um, starting about 50, 1950s and 1960s, and we have a you know we still have a long way to go. We haven't even talked about what the American Civil War did to American religious life, Connor. So the question is, do Mormon leaders really believe that faith, or do they, a more cynical view was they know they're leading a cult. By the way, the LDS church is extremely rich. They have piles of money. Also, Seventh-day Adventists are, um, the Seventh-day Adventist church organization is pretty well off. are they doing these things because they just want to have followers and money? God, you know, God knows. God knows the true condition of their hearts. I, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, it's hard, hard to know. Kyle. Um, would you say that uh, how... how- KJV. Like I don't know if the Seventh Day Adventists. Um, uh, actually, no. Um, some of the stuff I was looking at online for the Seventh Day Adventists—they co- they're quoting from the ESV on some of their websites. So, um, I think the um, what I've seen of the LDS Church in terms of their marketing to the general, you know, population, I. I really get the sense that they try to appear like your regular evangelical Christian, you know. That and and in fact, one time, I don't watch religious TV very much. But one time, I saw this program, and I was really intrigued. And then at the end, I realized, you know, I'm, I'm listening to all this stuff. It was about an hour long. Then at the end, I'm like, oh, it's Seventh Day Adventists, Oh, okay. But for the most part, they sounded. You know, they've, they've. uh, There are Seventh Day Adventist um, universities. Um, Of course, they're big in healthcare, Um, and um, you know, they 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 look. You know, to the to the general public, it appears that they they are just another evangelical Christian group. Um, but it's when you go a little deeper that you begin to find they're not. They're not the typical evangelical church. Um, so I've kept us five minutes past. We should have quit five minutes ago, but of course this stuff is super interesting. I hope you found it interesting. Um, and uh, next month we will pick back up with some major figures from the black church as well as major white Christian leaders uh, preachers in um, in the years leading up to the Civil War. Thanks.